You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer, Mark Alderman, and Jim Schultz. Good morning, uh, Saturday, August uh, 29th. I'm here with my friends Howard and Jim and our special guest, Congressman Eric Swalwell, Democrat from California 15, the beautiful East Bay, overlooking San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Eric is seeking a fifth term for that seat. Uh, He had a very busy fourth term, Congressman, served on the House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees. Our listeners know there were one or two things going on there and ran for president along the way. So we're delighted to welcome him to the Beltway Briefing. And and Eric, uh, all politics is local, we all know. So let's start with what's happening back home in the 15th. Well, thank you, Mark, uh, Jim, and Howard. And uh, we got a little bit of good news this week that uh, the what's called the SCU fire uh, that's uh, near my district and actually all around my district, uh, second largest fire ever in California, uh, that it is it is starting to be contained and the threats to property and life uh, and structures in my district uh, have been uh, reduced. So many of the evacuation orders have been lifted. That uh, is a, a sigh of relief for us. But, you know, the the challenge is that this is an earlier fire season uh, than normal, uh, and now we have high winds coming and, uh, you know, still uh, utility lines that could be hit by brush that the winds kick up. And so this was lightning storms that was causing uh, these fires. So our firefighters uh, have a, you know, long, long uh, fall ahead uh, for them, but grateful for police and fire who are out there uh, taking care of it. But that's a, a very hyper-local issue for us. Uh, in California. Well, one that the whole nation is watching, though. What what a couple of weeks it has uh, it has been out there. Mark, and- the whole the whole nation is watching. But the interesting thing to me, always having been in Washington now for twenty five years plus, is that you know everybody assumes that people think in terms that that through which they look at politics and, and Washington. And um, I, th- I bet you that a lot of our listeners would not have thought that the first thing that the congressman said about his district was fires, but that's what's going on. <laughs> right. And it's just, it's just interesting how um, people forget that all politics is local. Yeah, it is. And it all starts at home. And, you know, it all starts at home and you know, what's happening in your district is probably the most important thing to you, and, and that's the way it should be. Well, one one or two things happening uh, also in the country, uh, Eric, and I, I wanted to ask you because you're uniquely situated uh, on this. Uh, the challenges with policing in this country continue. I know your dad was a cop. I believe your brother is a cop. Two brothers, yeah. Two brothers are cops. You were a prosecutor, and and yet um, I know you're concerned about where we are. So where where are we, and and how do we move from here? Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate uh, that I have seen uh, the best of uh, our cops. You know, in, in my family, the 
many people I worked with when I was a prosecutor uh, who still serve in my district uh, today. Uh, but I also recognize um, through these individual tragedies and also the institutional failures that Black Americans have a different experience. And then Brown Americans, uh, by and large, have a different experience. And, you know, we have seen that uh, while it would be a mistake to say, you know, all cops are bad cops. Um, that I certainly would never say that. There are, there are too many exceptions, though. There are too many exceptions uh, to uh, what we expect from police officers. And so we've passed in the House, you know, reforms that uh, would ban chokeholds, require body cameras, have a registry of bad uh, cops, a national registry. Uh, but that uh, will not be sufficient uh, if that's all we do. I, I still believe there's, you know, institutional uh, issues around investments in schools and healthcare and job training uh, that we're going to have to uh, address. Uh, but you know, it's it's hard to watch you know these you know just killing after killing and and for people to believe that you know we're not making progress on this. And Mark, in my in my district, when I was a prosecutor, you may recall Oscar Grant, uh, that name. And a movie was made yeah. about him, Fruitvale Station. Uh, he was he was Bart. shot by a, yeah a Bart police officer, a transit officer, and our office prosecuted that case. And it was tough because. You know, it created tension between the police and the, the prosecutor's office uh, because the police thought, you know, we were um, we basically should not have prosecuted that case. Uh, but we did. And I'm, I'm glad I was in an office that did believe that it was an unjustifiable killing. But since that murder in 2009, uh, which was on video, uh, he was unarmed. He was on his stomach with his hands behind his back, um, shot in the back. But since that murder... And we've not really made progress. We've seen, you know, from Eric Gardner to Kevin Brown uh, to Breonna Taylor, uh, and then recently with Mr. Floyd, uh, Blake, it's just, it, it persists. And uh, you can understand why Black Americans uh, are frustrated. Congressman, I think we can all agree that, you know, I, we'd love to see a day where um, African-American Brown families, if you will, don't have to have the talk that you've heard so much about. Um, and it's so impactful. And when you hear people talk about it, it's, it's really disturbing. But also disturbing right now is what's going on. Let's put the riots aside for a second. There have been, as a former prosecutor, in cities like Philadelphia, for instance, we've had an incredible rise of violent crime, gun crime in our city um, it, it through where prosecutors are hired that look through the lens more of a public defender than a prosecutor. And as a Democrat and as a liberal and as a former prosecutor, what are your thoughts on how to deal with those issues in cities like Philadelphia and uh, San Francisco and other major metropolitan areas? Because it is such a challenge because there is a deterrence factor as it relates to some of these crimes. And it's a fact in Philadelphia that the bad guys, if you will, the drug dealers, the people that are committing these crimes on other, you know, among and by and between drug dealers, and then folks are getting caught in a crossfire. There's a lot going on there, and there's an increase in that. And those folks don't feel like they're going to be prosecuted. How do we deal with that? Yeah. And, and Mark, you may rec- I think you were with me a couple of years ago when I went uh, to yes, Philadelphia. Yes, Temple. And right. we went to Temple, and we met with Scott Charles, who's doing a lot of good work in the city. He's a trauma counselor. At Temple Hospital has counseled over 7,000 victims uh, in his 14-year uh, career, uh, gun violence victims in the city of Philadelphia. And so, Jim, great question and great point. And I, I think, you know, there, there's, there's not one single gun safety 
Uh, and I say that as I'm wearing my, you know, end gun violence uh, T-shirt. There's not one single gun safety uh, measure that would, you know, fix what we're seeing in Philadelphia and Chicago. And also, again, I, I think there's also a track of, you know, are you investing in hope in these communities? Because for so many young people, uh, violence is the lowest form, you know, of communication. And, and when there's no more hope, uh, you know, and, and you, you don't have structure and, you know, you don't have, you know, schools that you're going to and people to look up to as role models, I, I do believe, you know, things break down and, and you resort to violence. But as far as gun safety laws go, um, a number of the gun crimes in Philadelphia and in many other cities are are committed by stolen guns. And so I've worked with Scott Charles and what we can do to make sure that lawful gun owners are you know better storing their guns, whether it's in their house or you know, in their cars. And because, um, you know, people come into Philadelphia before COVID, they, you know, go to a nice restaurant, then go back to the suburbs, car gets broken into, they leave the gun, you know, in the car. And now that gun is on the street. And, and that has contributed in, in many cities to how these guns you know, get in the hands of individuals. I don't, I don't necessarily think a background check is the issue, you know, for, you know, many of these um, street crimes. Uh, but I do believe passing background checks and, and also you know, having a national registry and, and banning assault rifles, uh, for me, I, I believe, would go a long way to reducing gun violence. That's not to say that we're going to have zero gun deaths uh, in America, probably in our lifetime. But I do believe, just as we did with, uh, you know, making cars safer, uh, if you put in place uh, not just the gun safety laws, but also, um, you know, investing in communities, you could see them dramatically uh, come down. Uh, but, you know, something that was so striking to me as a prosecutor, I'll never forget it, uh, in Oakland, I had a court case, back-to-back trials once. It was a, it was a uh, dog, animal cruelty case, and the courtroom was filled for the week-long trial with local SPCA volunteers who were there in solidarity with the dog and wanted to make sure the person was held accountable. I went right from that trial into a 16-year-old boy killed in Oakland uh, by a 19-year-old. And there was almost no one in the courtroom uh, in that trial, but the people that were there uh, were all women. And I remember that being something that really struck me because I learned that there were no males uh, in either the victims or the defendants' lives, uh, that you know, they were largely on both sides raised by their, their mothers, their grandmothers, their, their aunts, uh, women around them. And, and I do believe that you know, not having you know, male role models in their lives uh, is is something we have to continue to understand, you know, what contributes to that. I think that goes back to you know, the original sin of slavery and us not fully reconciling with that. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's a big challenge, but I, I get it, Jim. Um, if, if but what are, about, the, oh, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Uh, the question, you know, getting into it though, and I, I think this is a really important issue, and I think you're the perfect person to talk about it. So on the prosecutorial side, we've seen these Soros-backed, DAs put in around the country, right? And a lot of times the police now are complaining, especially the police unions, that they don't feel supported by these DAs. We're seeing that in Philadelphia. It's a real hard push and pull that they're afraid they're going to be prosecuted, that good cops are going to be prosecuted, or that they're going to go and do the work, arrest the bad guys, and and the bad guys aren't going to be prosecuted. And I'm a criminal justice reform advocate. Um, Our firm has advocated for criminal justice reform. I personally am for it, but at the same time, there has to be that hammer to deter folks who are 
for committing these crimes in the cities, how do we instill confidence in our police by and through the DAs around these countries in the big cities? What, what's the balance there? How do you strike that yeah. balance? And you're not going to get an argument from me that uh, we shouldn't have stiffer sentences for violent crimes. I mean, I, I draw a distinction between uh, violent crimes and you know non-serious, non-sexual, non-violent. I think that's a different uh, bucket, and we probably shouldn't be filling prisons up as much with those individuals. But if you're going to hurt somebody, especially you know with a weapon, uh, I, I, I do want, I do believe that you have to have a, a stiff sentence. Um, with police officers, there's recently this summer, the Atlantic had an interesting piece around how you can't separate the amount of guns in our communities with the unjustifiable killings that are taking neighborhoods because they may, you know, themselves be questioned about the tactics they use. Um, and I, I think we can't ignore that taking place right now by police. Uh, and, and I think that goes to your question of, you know, officers are afraid, you know, to police or they're afraid, you know, to go into tougher because of the proliferation of firearms in our communities that if the police officer is drawing their service weapon because they believe that their life is at stake and, at stake, and that's the only reason they should be taking their weapon out is if it's their life or someone else's life. That means that they perceive that there are too many weapons you know, out there. And I really think that is at the core of you know, many of these split-second decisions that police officers are making you know, is, is that they, they presume that you know, the individual is armed. And, and we can't separate how many guns are in our community from that presumption. I, I think there's a separate presumption that Black men in America are dangerous and guilty, which that goes back to the institutional issue. But I think the fact that there are so many weapons in our communities, um, that is why the police, you know, in, in part are uh, reflexively, I, I think, escalating the level of force that they should use. I want police to be able to police. I, I don't want, I'm not in the camp that would say, you know, if there's a domestic violence call that I would not want the officer to go there. I want the officer to go into the house and, and protect the victim. I, I want them to go to the bank robbery. I want them to go, you know, to the the block that just had a shooting. I, so I, I, again, I think it's more complex though than just um, what the sentences are and uh, you know who the prosecutor is. But I, I I do agree that I hear that from cops. What you just described that they uh, that they're just not going to be as proactive um, because they they fear the policies uh, prevent them from doing that. Well, and now. Congressman, like everything else, uh, it has been politicized. It, it, policing has become a highly partisan, highly charged issue. And we have uh, an election coming up in 66 days. The uh, president is falsely, I will say, accusing uh, Vice President Biden of wanting to defund the police. But there is no doubt that law and order is is front and center along with the pandemic and, and the economy. I think those are probably the three issues stirring the mix here. So how, how do we as Democrats, how do we as Democrats strike that balance so that people can feel safe in Joe Biden's America? Of course, we don't feel safe in Donald Trump's America, I will point out, Jim. But how, how do we strike the balance so that people feel safe in Joe Biden's America while at the same time moving forward on all of these racial justice issues? Right. And, and I would say, you know, Joe Biden has a plan that 
would expand police hiring and training. And also the HEROES Act that we passed in the House, you know, would provide a uh, trillion dollars in federal uh, in, in federal dollars to state and local governments that would go to police officers who could be laid off because of COVID cuts, you know, essentially. Um, to me, I think we need to police the police. Uh, I'm, I'm not calling for, you know, not having the police show up. But I, I do think as far as the election goes, you know, Donald Trump is the president and a re-election is a referendum on the president. And so, you know, while he, I understand why he wants to make this a referendum on Joe Biden, um, I think the best thing Biden can do is to continue to indict Donald Trump for this chaos. And it's hard to argue that this is Joe Biden's America when, as you said, I mean, this is Donald Trump is president right now. And, you know, this chaos is going on. I think the best parallel we have in our time is probably 1968. But the difference in 1968, because, you know, Nick, Nixon often referenced the silent uh, majority that wanted law and order. Um, but the difference in 1968 was that uh, Lyndon Johnson was not running for, you know, re-election. Um, and so here, if, if Lyndon Johnson was running for re-election, I think he would have lost because he was the president and, and there was, you know, a lot of unrest in the country. Here, you have Donald Trump is running for re-election. And I think Joe Biden has wisely um, condemned the violence, put forward you know, a plan uh, around racial justice, and also, uh, I think, has made most families feel like he would be someone that would you know, be able to make you safe in your community. And, and I don't think it's a winning tactic when you say that somebody is really a Trojan horse for others. You know, in that I think well, that, a failure. Well, most on. Saturday mornings, Eric, that Jim and Howard gang up on me uh, about how AOC is going to be Secretary of Treasury. This is the part, Howard, where you get to complain that Joe has to come out of the basement. Well, uh, go ahead, Howard. You, I, I've talked enough. Go ahead. I agree with that, Jim. Um, <laughs> I always talk too much. Now, um, I guess Congressman the. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris need to court Trump voters because that progressive agenda isn't America's agenda. Yeah. So, Howard, at the convention, I, I think the difference between the two conventions was that we sought to add voters. And, and when you look at a convention that featured Bernie Sanders, AOC, John Kasich, you know, former Republican members of Congress. Uh, former Republican governors, Meg Whitman, I think you saw, you know, a broad coalition, uh, you know, a, a, it was a unity convention, not just in the party, but across the country. I think the Republican convention was mostly aimed at not losing more voters, at, at reminding the base why they voted for Donald Trump. But I didn't see an effort to try and bring more people, you know, in. Uh, and I think that's because you've you've seen that he has been, his base has been dropping in the margin between Biden and Trump going into the conventions has been widening. So I, I that's why I say I, I just don't think it's effective to argue if Biden is saying, you know, I believe in racial justice reforms, I'm condemning the violence, I'm going to fund the police, and Donald Trump is actually not signing the HEROES Act. I, I don't think it's a convincing argument to most voters that, 
Biden is really saying that is going to turn the country over to people that would believe something else. I, I, I don't think that's going to work. But I, I think the problem there, Congressman, is that Biden just hasn't been bullish. If, if, if Biden were saying the things that you were saying today, I'd agree with you. But he but, hasn't been bullish on that. That's why we tried to get Eric nominated. So, so, so we came I, up I, a couple of thousand delegates short, Eric. <laughs> and, and, and Eric, you said it correctly. It was time to pass the torch it, when you when you announced your your election uh, bid for president. But you know, I don't think Biden has either the ability or the or the willingness to come out and be bullish on the issues that you're talking about here. And I don't think that bled through with the convention. I think, you know, trotting out a bunch of Hollywood folks and a bunch of Republicans that were angry with Donald Trump, I I don't think you're adding folks to the, you you may be trying to expand your your base on the left, but I don't think you were expanding anything on the right. And the ratings pretty much show that you were preaching to the choir in terms of, and when I say you, I mean the collective you, the Democratic Party, were preaching to the choir Whereas I think Republicans, in terms of what the ratings showed, were getting much more cross-section of folks into the Democratic Party. And when they really focused on things like criminal justice reform and some of the other you know, middle issues, if you will, middle ground issues, I think they were inviting people into that tent more so than ever before. So I think we look at it through a different lens, but... Um, but I just think trotting out Hollywood actors versus real people is a is the striking difference between the two conventions. And I, I saw a lot of real people, you know, on our side, like the woman who lost near my district, who lost yeah. her father and said, you know, the only pre-existing condition he had was that he listened to Donald Trump when it came to COVID. I mean, that was a, a real a compelling person. story. Yeah. But I, I do believe that and I'm in the camp because I, I was getting a ton of text messages, text messages Thursday night as Trump spoke and uh, Friday morning saying, you know, all these lies that he made about Biden, we need to be responding one by one by one. And I'm in I'm in the opposite camp. I, I think this is a referendum on Donald Trump. And we have to just keep ripping the bark off and chopping the tree down, because if Biden is constantly on his heels defending himself, that is a, a second lost where he's not, as I said, indicting Trump for his failure to lead on COVID. And then also just, you know, other failures, whether it's on healthcare um, or just, you know, racial justice, the chaos that you're seeing. So I, I really believe, you know, if it's a, if you're trying to get people to stop drinking Pepsi and you want them to drink Coke, you can't just say why Coke is better. You have to first make them believe why Pepsi is worse. And I, so I, I really think Biden is wise to not so far, you know, engage on every claim Donald Trump makes about him. And I, I think that's actually frustrating Trump is that he's not going um, tit for tat with him on each claim. Look, people like people like me, who um, I worked for Bush and Obama. Um, go ahead, Mark. No, I was just going to say Brian Flaherty is perking up at this. Yeah, part. both sides of them. <laughs> but no, people like me who I, I don't identify with the progressivism of the Democratic Party from a policy point of view, but I, I certainly. Don't trust Donald Trump to run the country for four more years. You know, it's it's why John Kasich, the same reason John Kasich spoke at your convention is the reason why I'm not supporting Donald Trump. So how do you how do you appeal to people like me 
um, when AOC is the poster child for the Democratic Party over the long haul, because isn't that the key to uniting the country? Yes. And I want to appeal to people like you. And I think the appeal first, as I said, is to set up that. And Michelle Obama said it best. He's just not up for the job. He's in over his head. I, I think that you don't have to say he's corrupt. You don't have to say he's lost his mind. You know, you don't even have to go there, especially to the voters that they're not following this every day. They're, they're not watching CNN and you know Fox every day. But if they believe that he's not up for the job and they see somebody who, sure, may not be their first choice, but certainly is a seasoned hand, has put together a unity team from Kasich to AOC, I think that appeals to people that you're going to you know, see stabilization in the country, whether it's on health care, economy, racial justice, that, you know, it's a instead of Trump chaos, Biden calm, I guess. Yeah, that's how you win. But how do you govern so that people in the middle, which is the vast majority of the country, don't feel alienated? And so that all those people out there who support Donald Trump, who are supporting him for their own reasons, primarily economic, feeling like feeling left behind so that they feel like um, their leader, if Biden gets elected, is is actually their leader. I think he should have, you know, a unity team um, in the cabinet. I proposed this when when I was running that I would have a blended cabinet uh, in that, you know, he should have Republicans and Democrats, not Republican, not just one, but, you know, have both because you know, the work that will have to be done in the first hundred hours around COVID that has not yet been done, not just to dramatically expand testing, especially, you know, for teachers, you know, and, and people uh, who that's where I think the biggest failure has been, by the way, is on schools that if he had used the Defense Production Act so that every teacher and every school could be tested, you know, once a week, as well as, you know, the students um, and we're a country that could have done that, the schools would be open right now and, and you wouldn't have this angst uh, in the country. And so I think on COVID, you're going to find a lot of unity among, you know, the never Trumper Lincoln Project crowd that will want to work just on that issue. And then also on the reforming government issue, um, you know, what the, you know, Donald Trump has essentially taken a wrecking ball to the honor code, you know, the norms and customs and traditions that were not codified in the rule of law, but what you would expect good, honorable men and women to follow. And so I think just like post-Watergate, when you had this era of reform, there will be a bipartisan interest to make sure that, you know, much of what he, you know, crashed into is repaired and, and cannot happen again. And so, but that's not to say that I, I, I'm not naive. I know that the Lincoln Project folks, you know, in 2022, they may have their own Republican candidates that are back to the, you know, government should be small, taxes should, I'd be happy to go back to just those arguments. But I, I think in the first couple of years on COVID and on reform, you know, some connective tissue between both sides. Well, Eric, we've got a, a minute or two only left. I want to ask you uh, quickly what is going to happen uh, when you get back to Washington the day after Labor Day. We've got the pandemic still raging. We've got an economy in deep recession. We have a HEROES Act sitting out there for two, three months now. We have the HEALS Act from uh, the majority leader in the Senate that doesn't even command the support of his caucus. And the country needs help. Well, what are the prospects for getting back to work in Congress? 
Well, I hope that there's a confluence of the HEROES Act and, you know, the government funding bill, because, you know, the government funding will run out at the end of the fiscal year, September 30. So we're going to have to at least have a, a short term measure. And maybe that's an opportunity to also provide relief for the folks who are unemployed, the small businesses who need an extension of the Paycheck uh, Protection Plan, which is a very popular program across the country. I think that was that's the best of both sides working together, you know, that program. Uh, how that uh, came together. And I, I hear praise for it from uh, Republicans and uh, Democrats. Also, though, the deficits that we're going to have in you know, state and local governments will only be more uh, pronounced. And, and so I, I hope that we can come together. I'm, again, I've been around. I, I know that you know, 66 days from an election, um, what we can do will be uh, limited. And, and that's why I believe if the Democrats win big, and I, I do believe this is going to be an earthquake uh, election uh, where uh, you could see as many as 10 Senate seats uh, flip. Uh, the House margin probably stay the same. And Joe Biden is president. I think the work will be immediately to uh, have, you know, a uh, COVID relief and recovery package. Uh, and, and I keep hearing the words of the Fed chairman who's told our caucus, the president's appointed Fed chairman, that you can't spend enough right now for what the need is uh, to come out of this. And he's also said it'll never be cheaper. Uh, and so. Now is the time to do it. And, you know, I, I hope we get it right when we do. Well, Congressman, I have one more question before you go. I, I want to end on that prediction, Jim, of 10 Senate seats. Come on. You think Joe Biden should debate Donald Trump yes. after Pelosi's comments? Yeah. I think, and he, he's going to debate him. Um, I think Donald Trump has foolishly buried the bar beneath the earth of like what Biden has to clear. Um, but yeah, I, th I think the country will be served by uh, those two debates, those two debating. Cool. Great. Well, thank, thank you, you, Eric. And Thanks, congratulations to uh, Nelson and Cricket. I don't know if they're napping, but they did not make their video like debut here. Room because they weren't in here. Uh, so. yeah. We very, very much appreciate it, Eric. Well, nice to meet you formally. Thank you for listening to the Beltway Briefing. If you liked our show, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And while you're at it, drop us a rating. To learn more about the Beltway Briefing or Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, please visit our website at copublicstrategies.com.